results aren't going your way, it's easy to kind of like get on each other. A difference in our style, but it wasn't a difference as to who we are or what our identity as a team Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTV Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome to the Sunday Paper Review on Off The Ball. John Duggan here, sitting in for Joe Malloy. We hope you're doing okay around the country this morning. Delighted to be joined on the line by the Irish Times columnist Joanna Reardon and in studio by the Irish Examiner sports writer Brendan O'Brien to review the stories of the day. Joanne, how are you going on? Not too bad, oh John. How's life with you? Yeah, good, yeah. It was at Leinster yesterday. You were watching Liverpool. I was. Family barbecues in Liverpool, yeah. I decided to take the other option, but... uh... Yeah, not too bad now. I think uh, every Liverpool fan would be secretly happy. We have a Chelsea fan and our mates now in the family, so wasn't a good day at all now for them yesterday. Yeah, no, fair play. We'll get to it in a second. Brendan, you keep them well? All good, John. Thanks. Least GA, not very um, No. In, in good health at the moment. Not a good time to be a Least GA fan or a lapsed Man United fan. It's, yeah. um, it's tough times at the moment. And no articles on, on them at all in the papers today, so... You know. Yeah, well, exactly for a change. There's, there's, yeah. you know, there's always a silver lining, isn't there? Yeah, well, I suppose there is always the ten hag stuff, um, yeah, which yeah. we'll get to in a moment. Let's just go through what is on the back pages and the, the supplements here today. Uh, so we have the Sunday Independent Sport captain, fantastic masterclass from Sexton steers Leinster to sixth final, so they're into the Champions Cup final on May the twenty eighth against Rossi ninety two or La Rochelle. Liverpool's Cup of Cheer, Red still dreaming of quadruple. We have the Sunday Times Sport, Living the Dream. Um, so Liverpool win FA Cup final shootout uh, to keep quadruple hopes alive. Two trophies now. And Cullen, only our best will be good enough in the final. Leo Cullen and Rangnick, I want to help Ten Hag fix Man United. So we might get to that a bit later on, uh, Brendan. Oh. <laughs> you can hear the, ga- the gasps of, uh, of despair from Brendan O'Brien there. Um, I think Rangnick is just almost just trying to keep himself at the club in, in some capacity. Stay I, relevant, I, I, don't, I don't know if they even want him. <laughs> uh, we have the Irish Daily Mail. Let's get it done. Demolition of Toulouse leaves Leinster one step from their fifth star. And extra special reds. Liverpool refuse to lose and keep quad dream alive with FA Cup win. Two games, 240 minutes, no goals, two penalty shootout wins over Chelsea. Utterly bizarre. And Joanne will talk about the neuroscience of that shortly. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Wilson, always worth a read in The Observer. On Erlin Haaland, Alf's revenge, ruthless disruptor Haaland can be the striker Guardiola craves. This is almost bringing Roy Keane into this, which is always some way bringing Roy Keane into everything. Um, and that tackle against Alf Ingle Haaland. We've got the back of the Sunday World, Pools, Cool Costa, uh, Simicast wins, FA Cup for Reds, and Shootout. Johnny a hero, Skipper Sexton, brilliant as Leinster reached the Euro final, 40 points, a 17 win over Toulouse. And uh, Kerry's brilliant bench is a really good weapon. Pat's Balan and then Fighting Spirit sees Jurgen's Warriors lift another trophy rights John Aldridge back of the sun on a Sunday usual tabloid transfer speculation stories he's de gone Frankie de Jong is willing to kiss goodbye to nearly 6 million in unpaid wages to clinch a move to Manchester City I thought he was going to Man United but anyway I'm sure next week it'll be somebody else um, two down two to go cop KO Thomas uh, to keep quad alive not being Chelsea season has it Red's joy, but star trio pick up injuries. So Salah, Van Dijk and Robertson all picked up injuries yesterday, the extent of which we don't not sure 100% what their prognosis is for the Champions League final. Uh, jumpers and goals post. So Ange Postacoglu's got a favourite jumper and the Celtic fans love us. Beats Motherwell 6-0. And Galvin Ban has Claire on the canvas, writes Babs Keating. But I don't think 
he's, he's not just one player. I think Clare going to do okay today. We have the back of the mirror. Simply red, probably the best headline of the day. Uh, Copper FA Cup Kings as Costas holds his nerve to score the shootout winner. And Kyogen stars and Cats win over the dubs. A double point, double score rather. Uh, it was a 325 to 17 points for the Dublin uh, losing to Kilkenny yesterday in the round robin of uh, the Leinster Championship. And Conte's Tentation, which we'll get to, which is also the same story, the back of the star. Ten Hag wants Conte. So new Man United boss Eric Ten Hag is eyeing Chelsea star N'Golo Conte to kickstart his Old Trafford rebuild. Uh, the French World Cup winner, who's 31, has got one year left on a Stamford Bridge contract. So uh, Pep Mind Game, Pep Guardiola says, any player who joins Manchester City must have the mental strength to cope with the pressure of playing at the highest level. I wonder, is that a message to Erling Haaland? And two down, two to go. Quad dream still on after shootout win. That's what's in the back pages this morning, folks. Nothing really amazing. Uh, a lot of match reports. Um, Brendan, you were yeah. at Leinster yesterday. I was there as well. Yeah. Great occasion. Actually, it was funny. I was I was at um, Welford Road the week before, so oh. I, wasn't, I wasn't at the Munster game in the Aviva. But people who were at both of the games were telling me just before kickoff, like there wasn't the same energy, and I think that would come from the fact that maybe there was a, a hope in the Leinster or in the Munster crowd, whereas it was an expect expectation with Leinster. But once the kickoff happened and the game started, it was just it's you know it's a very rare occasion that you get to a sporting event and you find yourself after ten or fifteen or twenty minutes kind of exhaling and realizing. Oh, that's the first time I've really kind of done that in, in that period of time. It was just breathless stuff. Um, the intensity of Leinster, there's been a lot of talk with their hunger that they haven't won it in, in four years. And of course, for a club like Leinster, that's that's like a generation without with, without that trophy. So it was a, a great a great occasion from kickoff. 42,000 crowd was incredible. Tickets only went on sale on Monday morning. Uh, so to, to do that in that period of time is something else. Beautiful day for it. Helped get some of the Sunshine supporters out as well. And uh, it's interesting reading the papers today. Um, you know, there seems to be a sense that it's Leinster's to lose now, which is obviously dangerous territory in itself. I think there was a sense of that yesterday. I think everybody's confident enough for various reasons that they would beat Toulouse, but that maybe the fact that all the cards were stacked in their favour was, from a very Irish pessimistic point of view, something to be fearful of. But you you look to the final as well. Um, there's nothing for them to be afraid of coming up against another huge top 14 opposition, you know. Joanne, when it comes to Munster, I think the articles are more interesting because it's all about the flux and the turmoil and they haven't won a trophy in a decade and they've got new coaches coming in. With Leinster, it's pretty boring. There's not, not much, Joanne, really to... to read about Lancer that's interesting is the controversy free zone and that's what winning does yeah exactly you know and I think really with Leinster you just see that it's a success breed success zone everyone probably in that team just literally wants success you know there's like a without a, without a trophy is basically a failure for Leinster um, and you know as a Munster person it's just so disgusting I'm going to have to say <laughs> <laughs> no in all, in all seriousness you know I think it's, it's 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 impressive you know from a total outsider like looking in you know you can't help and I think they've learned a lot of lessons you know I saw Johnny Sexton basically saying that you know last year they let occasions you know like get to them you know they were too they thought about it you know too much it was it was all about the day rather than you know they played the occasion rather than the game and I think they would have learned a lot of lessons from that as well um so yeah it'll just be interesting to see what they're doing and i think you know everyone's in top form johnny sexton seems to be loving life we all know when he's loving life he's very dangerous um so it'll be interesting to see but i think as brendan said i think it's very strange to look at an irish team and say oh my god it's actually there is to lose because 
we just cover ourselves with a lot of, um, you know, oh dear, you know, we're not the favourites at all, we prefer underdog kind of status, so, yeah, look, I mean, we'll see, we'll see what'll happen, you know, the Munster fan in me is a little bit jealous, a little bit envious, but, uh, you know, you just have to roll with it, uh, you know, but hopefully, you know, something, and it's obviously fitting as well that Munster went out in the most dramatic fashion you could, like, ever imagine, like, yes. I was at the game, and Dad was like, it went to penalty kicks, and I was like, I've never heard of that in my life, like, you're just <laughs> things up now for Munster to get knocked out. <laughs> it was only the second time in 27 years so uh, he, he was right and well you do have a Munster I suppose link now you'll be the Raj, Raj Leinster final or the Mike Prendergast Leinster final now uh, Joanne all so you have to decide who you're going to support Raj. all hopes are on Raj no pressure at all on him whatsoever um, you know but if you know that's all you can do just bow down to the greatness <laughs> big time big time Neil Francis um, there's nobody in the Munster to lose camp with the rugby intellect of Stuart Lancaster and so the game plan and its implementation was probably not too much of a call for him to make and also it was a coaching masterclass from Leinster this is later in the piece Lancaster's prep was decisive the trick now is to keep him there's a strong rumour Leo Cullens to be given the Leinster chief executive job which if correct would lead to a coaching shakeup. whatever it takes to keep Lancaster in a tracksuit should be done he is after all the de facto Ireland coach Brendan. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a line that stands out all right. When you look at the amount of time I suppose that he's spending with these guys and, and the, the collective influx of Leinster players into the Ireland team, it's it's something that you could you could make a strong argument for. I'm sure Andy Farrell and his coaching staff would disagree, but but there is an element of truth to it, um, given the crossover between the two of them. It's it's interesting times for Leinster now. I mean the the Leo Cullen CEO rumour has been out there, remains to be seen what happens. Um, Leo Cullen has been on a one-year rollover contract as well um, for a number of years, so he's, it's not like he's locked down to that on, on a long-term basis. So we'll see what happens there. Stuart Lancaster has been asked time and time again, you know, when is he going to move on and take the reins somewhere himself? And he's always knocked it back and his reasoning has been, why would I leave here, you know? But maybe there's not that many jobs that are suitable as well. Well, that's it. I mean, from a purely coaching rugby point of view, you look what he has in Dublin. I mean, it's actually phenomenal what he's doing because he's still commuting over from, from his base in Leeds as well um, all these years. So that, that shows a remarkable uh, commitment to what he's doing in Dublin. Um, and you have to look at Leinster as well. There's There's rumours that... Felipe Contepomi will be taking up a role under Michael Checa with the Pumas in Argentina. So there could be a little bit of um, coaching change, uh, musical chairs there at some point. And I think what Lancaster's influence shows us is you can have 99% of things right, but if you don't have one key element in, in everything, it's not going to work the way it is. You look at the influence he's had this year, you look at that four-week stretch, or was it three or four-weekend stretch in December when COVID wrecked their season, and they gave up the points to Montpellier very controversially, the 28-0 that was decided by EPCR. Lancaster had them for mini pre-season, mini mid-season pre-season, if that's what you want to call it. So he had his hands on them for a long, long time then. Then you, tr- you fast forward to the two-week tour in South Africa where Lancaster and all the frontliners stayed at home. So the amount of time that he has had with those guys... Um, in all that time his fingerprints are undoubtedly all over he is much happier on the pitch than he was as a kind of director of rugby guy with with uh, England which ended so badly for him so you know um, say, say Leo Cullen doesn't stay on in the long term theoretically does Lancaster want everything that comes with a director of rugby role does he want to be the guy who's facing the media all the time he's very very well practised with the media as you guys know here um, but does he want all that in his role? And 
where he is at the moment. It just seems to suit him. It suits everybody. Um, his stock has gone up considerably. I mean, there's talk in one of the other pieces, Stuart Barnes in the Times talking about Ronan O'Gara as being one of the the leading contenders for the England role after Eddie Jones goes. Ronan O'Gara, England. Yes, Joanne, absolutely. come on. That, 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 this is an April Fool's joke. <laughs> this is this is something I think that has been mentioned before. So, I mean, Ronan O'Gara has to be up there. Ronan O'Gara Irish would people, never coach England. As Irish people, we have to say, look, that's beyond the pale, but why not? Would Ronan O'Gara ever coach England in your view, Joanne? I mean, listen, I eyebrow raised when Brendan said that. Like, I, I, I thought my eyebrows would fall off. They went up so high there uh, when I heard it. But, you know, I mean, as Brendan said, it's against the pale. But if the opportunity came up, you know, could you really begrudge it to him beyond the hatred for England? I don't, I don't know. Um, God, that actually gives me anxi- anxiety. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Ronan Agara has described the England job as a cracking job. Has he? Yes, he has. Right. So, I mean... It's a professional coaching world. You look at Conor O'Shea, who's done great things in the English game at Harlequins. Um, I think he was with the English Institute for Sport. He's now involved in the RFU. You look at England as well. They've had South Africans, they've had Australians, they've had people from all over the world coaching them in rugby, in football, in cricket. They don't care where they come from. They're going for the best guys. They've got Brendan McCullum in, the New Zealand legend, to take over their test cricket team. These guys don't care. If you're from Cork or you're from... Melbourne or whatever if you're the guy for the job they'll look for you well we're, we obviously have the same view with Andy Farrell yeah absolutely I mean that's that, but that's professional sport yeah, isn't yeah. it I mean, just, Raj for me would seem to be an obvious Ireland coach of the future you know yeah and an obvious Munster coach but that's what we take for granted yeah, and he yeah. has said time and time again you can't take these things for granted everybody thinks that himself and Paul O'Connell will one day ride back into to, to England or to, to Limerick on the white horses and everything will be fine but that life doesn't work out like that all the time. And he said as well that he doesn't have a plan down the road. He doesn't plan these things. Who knows where life takes a Ronan Agara or anybody? Now that, I'm sure that's a sporting hatred you mean there, uh, Joanne. <laughs> um, Listen, Brendan, I mean, did Ali Gunnar have a great time there at Man United? You know, so sometimes it doesn't happen your yeah. way, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I do think they made uh, Lancaster fall guy in 2015, mm-hmm. England. Like, if they give him another chance, would they have won a World Cup with him? Um, like it was a very very painful World Cup exit in a group stage at home Yeah. so in a way it was inevitably he would be sacked but like even Australia they're linking linking him with Eddie Jones now in 2027 yeah. so Eddie Jones' stock is obviously seen as high even though England at the moment are a bit of state of yeah. flux um, it, it's interesting as well like the two players that didn't make the New Zealand set up Gibson Park and Lowe were sensational yeah. yesterday and there's, there's there's comment from Stuart Barnes on Gibson Park in the uh in the Sunday Times as well, just going through that at the moment. Um, was kind of talking about the rook speed and stuff. It was just fascinating stuff. Leinster's uh, were recycling ball within one and a half yeah. seconds. It leaves defences floundering and attacks charging, but the scrum half has to pick his options in split seconds. The Ireland number nine is that Aaron Smith-like expertise in choosing the right option. Leinster want what the French have had for the past two seasons. Gibson's Park attitude, as much as his skill, epitomises this hungry, talented team. So I just think that Gibson Park just completely epitomises what Leinster and Ireland are about now. And like rugby at times, I find it difficult to watch. I think, you know, the players go through each other and around each other. But yesterday, it was all about tempo. It was all about movement. It was all about this relentless, constant metronomic movement of Leinster. And that was really exciting to watch. Absolutely. And, and all the discussion about Leinster in the last three years that they've lost to Saracens twice and they've lost to La Rochelle is... It's been kind of boiled down to this simplistic, they don't have the physicality to deal with the big teams. I've been as guilty of harping on about that in, in examiner as much as anyone. 
But there is obviously an element of truth to it, a large element of truth to it. And you look like Will Skelton, what Will Skelton did to them with Saracens and La Rochelle in previous years. Um, but that's the great thing about watching Leinster play, that they do it in a kind of a, a more aesthetically pleasing way. It, it shows that rugby can be, you know, it's not all about who's biggest is best. And it was very noticeable yesterday. I don't know if it was because of maybe a perceived tiredness on Toulouse's part, but the amount of, um, I'm going to use a rugby term now, soft shoulders. That oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, I hate myself for it. I do, I really do. But the amount of times that they went into contact with the ball in hand and they slipped off a tackle in a good way, Leinster, and they'd make an extra three or four metres, it was, it was astonishing. That's to do, we go back to Lancaster, the quality of the coaching, the footwork that we see from these forwards. You saw the outrageous pass that Tyke Furlong played uh, the, the loop pass half the width of the field before he came off was just ridiculous so the skill factor that they have among their forwards is something that we haven't really seen before and then you ally that into the, the likes of Lowe and Gibson Park very clever canny signings that they've made and both of them are playing world class rugby at the moment as what I said earlier on with Lancaster you can have 99% of the things right but if something else is off kilter it holds you back Everything Leinster are doing at the moment seems to be right on the money. Joanne, uh, the papers don't really have much analysis of Liverpool. as mainly more match reports, but you watched them, and I read the piece you did in the Irish Times with uh, Leanne Kiernan during the week. Uh, the men's team yesterday, it wasn't Simicast or Alisson that won the cup. It was the neuroscientists, apparently. It was. I mean, everyone knows that Jurgen Klopp is all about the extra 1%, you know, between the throw-in coaches telling ball boys to throw the ball in very quickly, um, you know, during their game against Barcelona where they came back, to now bringing in neuroscientists for penalty shootout. Like, I think, if, I mean, Gareth okay was there, so I think he's definitely taking notes there on, on what possibly to do. Um, but yeah, psychology and penalties, that's that's the new thing these days. That's what it's all about. It's no longer a lottery, lads. I, I hate to I hate to, to break that bad news. Um, it's all about, as Jurgen Klopp would say, mentality monsters and uh, getting it right. So, uh, yeah, I think... Uh, from experience, I remember doing some dabbling in psychology in college and specifically looking at penalties. And uh, I think first rule of thumb is you don't send your star striker up. Uh, that's usually a disaster. You celebrate every penalty score as if your life is depending on it. You stand as close as you possibly can to the bench. Um, and more importantly, if there's a big penalty to take, you don't send a star. You send some little fella down the road. And that's what Jurgen Klopp did. He sent up Castles and uh, he delivered. And uh, I mean, listen, That's he said it himself. He said the FA Cup and the Carabao Cup is solely down to a crowd called Neuro11 in Germany, which is four neuroscientists who came over and drilled all this information into Liverpool for the last number of years. But I think it just goes to show you, it's it's the 1% now these days. You know, I mean, I think Thomas Tuchel even said it. He said, yeah, Liverpool are great because they can roll out teams Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Saturday again. And it doesn't take a dent no matter who they put in. So that's just the way we're at at the moment. And uh yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not a Liverpool supporter myself, so it's. Uh, it's sad as well to see. <laughs> so, what's your team, Joanne? I'm a Barcelona fan. Oh so well, I, that's 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 you know that's a classy answer. I fully. I had to fully embrace the you know the look, watching the ball boys being trained because I went to Anfield for the Barcelona game and uh, as soon as I saw the ball boys throwing in balls super quickly, I thought there's something going on here. 
there has to be something going on here. Um, and yeah, it's those one percents. It's those one percents. But it kind of reminds me, like I think you know, like we see it all the time. And I think there's like a bit of snobbery in it too, like in the GEA, that if you see these kind of people coming in, like these extra one percenters, you know, like your wellness people, your psychologists, your 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 neuroscientists, if you can afford it, different people like that. I think people actually, you know. I mean, listen, we can hype it up to the, to the, to the cows come home, but I think there obviously, there's a science to it, you know, and I think um, with Jürgen Klopp, his method is if, if there's a science to it, he will find it out and he will bring over whatever necessary method. It wouldn't surprise me if he had Wim Hoffen, you know, the breathing expert who goes into ice. It wouldn't surprise me if he was there at Liverpool either, just with how many people they bring in all the time. Well, Alisson was very intense in the shootout and he made a brilliant save uh, from Matt. Actually, yes. You have to take your time, you know, you have to. Um, you just you just have to stare the person down and make them uncomfortable. I don't know if you remember uh, the World Cup. I think it was uh, in Brazil, uh, and uh, Jasper Kielsen was subbed on, and uh, he would smile at the penalty takers because it would put them off, and it did. It used to put them off nonstop. So there you go. Just smile and stare down the person. Apparently, is the way to go. I'm I'm old enough to remember when psychology and penalty shootouts amounted to Bruce Grabelar wobbling his knees. Yes. Roma. Yeah. Well, and Mandy was trying yesterday. He was trying to move around. Um, but it is it, the, the, the psychology it's, it, you've 240 minutes of football and two shootouts yeah. Cueving Callagher the hero the, the last day and obviously he wasn't on the pitch yesterday um, but Mane missed you know you think yeah. Mane's going to score missed uh, Reese James just lobbed it straight into the middle of the goal uh, the keeper dived the wrong way but you, you look at Roberto Baggio in 94 as well one of the most celebrated yeah. of, of and got Italy uh, to the final on yeah, his absolutely, own absolutely you then, know yeah it's Sure, ourselves back in 1990, um, Romania, Packy Bonner saving and David Leary scoring. David Leary, who would have thought was the most unlikely of, yeah. of, of scores in a penalty shootout. But yeah, Costa Simicast scoring for Liverpool. Nothing much, as I said in the papers about it. Interesting, like Henry Winter writing about Romelu Lukaku. He worked hard but lacked the guile, the hunger, and the mobility to elude Van Dyke and Kanache. I think he's really playing at a higher altitude than Inter Milan, and it's shown. Mm. doesn't really fit into the Tuchel system. Um, Quite amazing, though. Jurgen Klopp has won the lot now. He's won every trophy now, uh, Joanne. He's won the FA Cup, the League Cup, the Champions League, the Premier League. Yeah, himself and uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, they've done it in the quickest time span. Trent Alexander-Arnold has six major trophies at the grand old age of 23. And now Jurgen Klopp has won, I think, the quickest amount of trophies uh, ever. You know, actually, I mean, this might be borderline semi-controversial. I'm not really too sure. But one thing, and people are going to say, this is because she's not a Liverpool fan. I'll take that on the chest happily. Um, But uh, a lot of, uh, you know, people come out and they say they'll be the first English club to potentially win, you know, the quad. Um, And I think that's kind of wrong because it was Arsenal women in 2007, uh, you know, the Emma Byrne team, um, you know, that incredible team who won, was it six trophies, uh, were totally unstoppable and won every single game. Uh, So that's my minor issue at the moment with some of the publicity it's getting. Like, they'd be the first in the men's, and correctly so, but they won't be the first in in football overall. You know, that honour goes to, you know, Vic Akers of the Arsenal ladies. So I just feel the need to put that out all the time. (laughs) Because I think it's important, you know, sports records also belong to women too. But uh, Absolutely, and in Gaelic Games as well, we see that, don't we? Gaelic Games, oh, it's Dublin's five in a row, and they they beat, uh, whereas actually Kerry in the ladies' football, or Kilkenny in the Camogie had... Better records. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, as I said, best of luck to Jurgen Klopp and his quad uh, adventure. Uh, my neighbour has put up. I think he's going to put up probably four Liverpool flags at this stage. I have my, I have my own issues with the quad as well, uh, unrelated to that. Uh, one is they haven't a hope of doing it. Yet we keep talking <laughs> about it. I mean, they haven't. I mean, they're, they're just not going to do it. 
you're looking for Man City to absolutely implode. And they went to Molyneux during the week and people said, mm, this is a tricky one. Wolves could do it to them. What happened? They got absolutely minced. My bigger problem with the quad is that it's being capped in all the newspapers. I don't know. Why are we capping quadruple? That's a purely ridiculous journalism kind of thing. But anyway. OK. <laughs> <laughs> I went, to, I went into Paddy Cullens for Heineken Zero after the Aviva yesterday in, in Ballsbridge in Dublin and when Simicast scored, place went mad. It's a deep uh, support that exists for Liverpool Football Club in this island. Like, it really is deep. Man United will be the same, but you just don't get that for other clubs. You're not going to get it for Shamrock Rovers as much as League of Ireland fans had wanted. You're not going to get it for Manchester City, I would say, but you're going to get it for Liverpool and Man United. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just what we all grew up with, isn't it? But yeah, but it's but it's it's continuing. Like even my nephew, he's in his early twenties. Yeah. He, he was in, he was, you know, he's deeply into it, and it it goes through families. It goes through a thread of families: the Liverpool, Man United, Celtic, as well, maybe Arsenal. Um, There's a good academic study to be done there. I mean, oh, there is, yeah, and like, but it 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 is real, and people yeah. go, "Oh, you don't only support your domestic game." You know, you're not going to get that level of decibel of support no. in, like if that's just one pub and, and all the pubs around the country yeah and again like you go through Dublin airport on a Saturday morning as I did last week for the Leicester game and there was Derby jerseys West Bromwich Albion there was a little kid five year old with his dad wearing a West Bromwich Albion jersey so was he by the way so you just wonder what, what's ahead for that poor chap <laughs> as he gets older but for the most part it is it's it's Liverpool it's uh, Man U and it's Celtic yeah and they still hold and it's huge, real and we, yeah. we need to embrace and we need to obviously develop a football industry in this country and, and support um, our domestic game and go to more matches and we all should be going to Tallis Stadium and Dediman Park and more and hopefully we'll have a Munster team in the League of Ireland and the Premier Division sooner rather than later Cork City will get back but this is also real you can have both I think that's good that these are not competing um, yeah. pillars of world football great know. great crowd in Tallis and Friday night 7 to 8,000 I believe yeah. for the, the game against um, Derry City the yeah. top two in the, in the league uh, the championship, there's so much going on and we're on air on News Talk from 1 to 7 uh, with uh, two Premier League commentary games. We've got West Ham, Manchester City, Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr calling that one. We also have uh, Jessica Farry and Vinnie Perth calling Everton Brentford. But we'll have reporters at Dublin Meath, at Kildare West Meath, at Cork and Waterford and also at uh, Derry Monaghan in the Ulster Senior Football Championship semi-final. But the Talton Cup is something that um, you kind of uh, want to talk about, Joanne, based on a, a piece, I think, in the Sunday Times today. I know this is obviously me bringing out my inner Cork bias and solely reading Cork writers here. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. You know, Mick Foley had a piece uh, basically talking about how the Talton Cup is basically there to kind of make its own history. And, you know, people were giving out about the situation with New York, you know, it being a north-south, you know, division, you know, situation going on with how the draw is going to be made. Um, and I think, you know, you're going to expect teething problems. You know, I always compared to, this is obviously the most odd comparison you could make but I compare it to season one of Drive to Survive when that came out Mercedes and Toto Wolf wanted nothing to do with it too dramatic stay away from me and now look at Toto absolute prime character in Drive to Survive so I think it's really like the Talton Cup I think McFoley's right like it, it's up to it to make its own you know history I'm sure when the Champions League and the Premier League and all those started out everyone was like why am I in this I think it actually someone was even saying actually was in the McFoley article that even when the GA Championship started that there was no Connacht you know teams or anything like that involved until you know late 18 19 you know early 1900s you know um so you know I think it's a situation where 
people are going to just have to back it you know teams are just going to have to understand that they're there and there for a reason obviously you've like the odd ones you know like Cavan who seem to go all hell for leather for championship but refuse to acknowledge the league as a system <laughs> so you know it's just I think just every team has to take it one step at a time and just understand that you know the content that they put out is 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 what we'll see you know and it's what's going to be promoted and if they're going to put out good content then you know the Talton Cup might be a little bit of success after and I think you know, the uh, Willy Wonka golden ticket of being in a potential Sam Maguire chase the next year, like surely be to God, you know, like that's enough, you know, and like not to throw an absolute nuclear bomb into this entirely, but surely teams can understand, you know, that playing Dublin and getting demolished by 15 or 16 points just isn't good, you know, that they should be playing themselves. And it's why the league works so well, because we see top teams playing top teams and then the lower teams playing lower teams, and it's way more exciting. Um, you know, as a Cork fan, flirting with the Talton Cup, it probably would have killed my soul, but at least I would have had a shot in All-Ireland. I would have taken that in a month of Sundays. Is marketing the issue, though, Joanne, when you think of Drive to Survive? It's the marketing. It's the amazing production. It's the accessibility towards a new audience. It's, it's the fact that you're going to have a Las Vegas Grand Prix next year. Yep. To me, okay. like this is just uh, just appearing on our doorstep, the Charlton Cup, and we don't almost know what to do with it. And by the time you get to July... August. Now I know we've had two years of COVID. I don't want to get into another calendar debate because I'll be here till three o'clock, <laughs> um, and I'm and, and I've had the whole club community on my back on Twitter all week. But the marketing of this and also the buying from the players is huge, you know. Absolutely, and I think marketing. I think you hit the nail on the head. It is absolutely key. If we, as in we, the media, and I hate even using terms like that, but if we even treat it, you know, like a competition that it deserves, you know, like it's it's a thing. But I think as well, like I mean, looking over, say, to like ladies football, you notice how successful that is. You know, the senior, intermediate, and junior situation. Sure, obviously, the junior intermediates will complain that they don't get media attention until All Ireland final day, and I mean that's a bigger debate, as you were just saying there for another day. But I think having that day out in Crow Park, I think being able to structure it in a way where, you know, they're basically playing the same days as, I mean, you obviously want them playing in the same venue. You probably don't want them in the same days because that's just a limitation on how much then we can actually cover ourselves. But, you know, you, you have to market it to in a way where it's appetizing, it's appealing. You know, there's surely some rivalry we can all dig into, you know, look at it on that. And I mean, I don't even want to get into the whole debate about the GA versus the media myself and how much we need players and the stories and the various things going on around, you know, counties in Ireland for it to be a, a driven thing. But, you know, that's what we need on top of it. You know, we need to have the lovely stories. We need to have the fluff stuff. And also we need to be able to get our teeth into something when it comes to why should we be interested in Wexford versus Wicklow or, you know, someone like that. Or why should we be interested in Cavan versus whoever, you know, I mean, you just, you just have to tell people you're interested. That's it. And then people will just watch it. <laughs> What's your view on this? Yeah, I, I think like from a media point of view, I think it's instructive if you look at um, the national leagues. Like, do we ever get any coverage really of Division Three or Four or even Division Two? I mean, you see the highlights programs on TV. There just isn't the media uh, structure there to really give it a proper coverage. So, I think it would be if it was the champion. If that was the structure of the championship, I think it would. Uh, I don't know. Just even from a logistical point of view, I don't. I mean, trying to get markings, trying to get people to cover all these, is is an issue in itself, and that's not a cop out. I mean, I think going back to Joanne's point, I think it'd be, it is crucial that these are played on All Ireland final day and All Ireland semi final. Like All Ireland final day, you've eighty two thousand people, like Dublin playing Kerry, say, or Dublin playing Mayo. You could, you could fill it twice over. Is not going to be issue then with ticketing? But that's it. I mean, there's no there's no magic bullet here for it. But if you want to give the Talchin Cup, it's it's due. 
it's due exposure. Well, what do you do with it? What will you get if you have a Talton Cup that's played in Croke Park on a Saturday of an All-Ireland final? If, even if you try to build yeah, up a kind of an All-Ireland final weekend extravaganza yeah, yeah. like an NFL, it'll still be three quarters empty. It'll still be nine tenths empty. And that's the reality of it. If you want to make this attractive to counties and especially managers in the Talton Cup, you have to have this. And Joanne is right. There is the the Willy Wonka chocolate ticket of this is your place in, 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 in the championship next year but you need to make that attractive to them now I was at the Wexford Offaly game down in um, in Wexford Park a few weeks ago after which we spoke to John Mohan the Offaly manager when they'd lost and we said John what's the story going to be now with the Talchin Cup and he said uh, I think his words were John Mohan is not going to stand in any, any lad's way who wants to go to America so that's what you're up against. Uh, what I love about Michael Foley's piece today is he didn't mention the Tommy Murphy Cup once. You know, that's that's the elephant in the room. And, uh, you know, that that's probably deliberate in Michael's, could be deliberate in Michael's, Michael's piece because that's what everybody's looking at. Is this the Tommy Murphy Cup Mark II? That's what everybody is thinking. And without the buy-in for the managers, it's dead in the water. It really is, in the short term anyway. OK. Um, once again, not much... <sighs> Because there's so many matches going on. Uh, we have Kilkenny winning last night, Brendan. Yeah. And Surprising second half there. Comprehensively so. And Westmead and Wexford drawing, which was interesting. Um, uh, Brian Lowen, there's a piece on him in the Irish uh, Sunday Independent, rather, uh, Dermot Crow. His popularity among hurling people from every county is down to his genuine personality. Uh, strike shooter and has got Claire playing to the extent where they could be in a Munster final Brendan yeah um, interesting guy Brian Lohan um, doesn't say a whole lot um, media terms or whatever but he's he's gone in there and he's done an exceptional job when you think of all the controversy about Clare with facilities and everything else county board issues um, it's not so long ago we were wondering you know where did Clare GA go from here Um for them to be putting it up to Limerick today, um, the championship needs it as well. You know, um, there's some questions about Limerick uh, after the first couple of games. Are they the Limerick of previous years? Tipperary ran them very, very close. Um, so we, what we need is we need a strong showing from Clare. We need a strong Clare in hurling. You look at Tipperary and Cork at the moment, who are obviously in rebuilding phases. So he's a he's a really interesting guy. Be interested to see how it goes today. What about Cork, uh, Joanne? Uh, Walsh Park, two o'clock throw in. But it would be quite amazing if the aristocrats of Hurling and Munster, Cork and Tipperary, were the two teams uh, relegated from this round robin. I know it's uh, it's not. A, I think it's not at the stage that Cork hurlers actually thought they they would they would be in. Um, you know, obviously it's incredibly disappointing from a Cork perspective. I mean, they are the team that is held so ferociously by the Cork public. Um, you know, I remember there was a really good article in the Examiner a couple of years ago where it basically said, you know, that the footballers were actually, you know, at that time, the footballers were the ones who were actually the most recent All-Ireland winners and no one seems to care about them. But the hurlers are held to such a high regard, it's impossible to even disrespect them. But um, I think it's obviously disappointing. You know, they will be disappointed with how they're kind of going. But I think the style of hurling that they're just trying to... You know, I mean, we see with like, you know, Black Rock, you know, the bars and Glen Rovers, you know, in club, in club hurling, like they play a brand, oh God, I even hate saying that, they play a brand of hurling that's, it's free flowing, it's fast, it's energetic, it's not like move through the phases, you know, type of hurling, it's it's just get the ball up, you know, get it to your big forward and just pump it over the bar. And I think hurling has gone to the stage where, you know, you, you, 
yes, you have to play through the lines a little bit, but you do have to mix it up. And you notice that with Cork all the time, they just refuse to mix it up. And then they'll get a random burst of energy in the third quarter, and then all of a sudden they'll just fade again because it's too much to overcome. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's basically where Cork at is at the moment. You know, and when I was at the, the football game last week, you know, all the stewards were saying to me how, you know, it's uh, not to sound full Pat's Falan on this, but it's fellas with earpieces in the stands telling Gary Kingston what to do. And I don't think that's the problem either. I think it's just there's probably, is there just too much in, input from anyone? I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, but I think to see where Cork Hurling is in Tipperary as well, I think it is incredibly sad. Because I think, you know, for the likes of Tipperary, they also probably would have had a shout and they would have been confident as well, you know, with, with management and stuff like that. But it just it just doesn't seem to be there. And I think the post-mortem at the end of the season is going to be ruthless, but it has to be ruthless to understand what, what is going wrong. Why can't we translate the lovely form and lovely hurling of club, club hurling not into county? Why is it a completely different game? Um, and yeah, it's going to be ruthless. It's going to be sore, but it's got to be done, unfortunately. If Hurling's half-dressed without Tipperary, what, what's it like without Tip and Cork? Great. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah. They've enough All-Irelands between them. No, but I do, no, seriously, I do think Cork does need a strong Hurling team. And I do think last August's defeat to Limerick was a painful defeat for Cork. Mm. And, uh, and the scars of that at Croke Park, because Cork always had that natural confidence and swagger and belief they could turn up any year and win the All-Ireland Hurling title, that does not exist anymore. Just does it, we're in a completely different landscape where the whole thing is flipped to be Limerick, Clare and Waterford probably the three teams to uh, get out of the Munster round robin but it's not over yet Cork still have a chance um, the best uh, article today and it's very very tough read um, it will always be only yesterday Tommy Conlon uh, speaking to Tracy Tully her life a realm of constant suffering since the murder of her son boxer Kevin Sheehy so Kevin Sheehy was a very promising heavyweight boxer uh, and from Limerick, who had the world of his feet, a hugely promising talent, murdered in 2019 uh, by Logan Jackson. And the reason why um, Tommy spoke to her is that on Saturday last, I'm quoting the article here, as she received confirmation, Logan Jackson would be transferred within a month to a prison near his home in the English Midlands. Uh, the family's concerned that if Jackson's repatriated, they'll have no recourse to the judicial system in England. I'm just reading about Kevin Jeehy here, um, a boxer, a boxer from the uh, Francis Boxing Club, St. Francis Boxing Club in Limerick. In August 2016, he won a national boxing title, the under-18 super heavyweight class. In January 2018, age 19, he won the national under-22 heavyweight title. Uh, just speaking about the grief that uh, Tracy has endured, the grief takes her down to the Black Fathoms where there's no sunlight uh, penetrating it. She says she feels there are weights attached to her wrists and ankles that drag her down to these unknown depths. It's a realm of constant suffering. She says she haunts her own house at night, walking around in a daze, submerged in this pitiless silence. She lives with Cassidy, her daughter, born seven years after Kevin, their dog, Max. Kevin's daughter was born after he um, was murdered. Um, uh, just to read a bit more on this, uh, on the CCTV footage that captured the incident that night, Kevin and his cousins could be seen walking away from the flashpoint with Jackson and his friend. It's hard for me, says Tracy, because I taught him right and wrong from a very young age. And I always said to him, they're lethal weapons now you have in your hands as a trained boxer. I always said to him, if you ever out in this trouble looming, walk away. Walk away, don't engage. And he did. He walked away. It kills me. It kills me every day. I'm still very proud that he walked away. I'm very proud my son walked away. So, uh, Keva, uh, uh, Emma and Kevin's daughter, was born in August of 2019. 
a couple of months after he was murdered. She gives that, me that little bit of will to live, says Tracy. It shouldn't be. It's not fair on her. I mean, she was born into such grief. She's got this amazing ability to make us laugh. She's out of her father's characteristics and in his intelligence. An excellent article by Tommy Conlon speaking to Tracy Tully. And you'd have to wonder why these extradition policies are in place. Just very tough read, isn't it, Brandon? It's just... Very, very, very tough read. And her heart goes out to them. Absolutely. And brilliantly written by Tommy it's that's such I mean the subject matter is so hard obviously but to get that tone I suppose right um, to make it readable in that sense I mean it's such harrowing subject matter but it's dealt with so well um, the the account of the incident itself is one of the hardest things you, you'll ever have to read in, in a sports section of a newspaper it's just awful beyond words and just coming away from it it makes you think like we see these things on, on the news you know we hear about them in the news we read about them in the newspapers and our lives go on but I think one of the, the quotes that really stuck with me is is his mum saying how she looks at her sister's faces and it's a haunted look um, I can see it on their faces so I can imagine what they can see on mine every day and that really sits with you it's just what do you say about a piece like that It's 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 just so hard to kind of digest it um, it's, it's harrowing in every sense of the word yeah it is it is um, and Kevin's very well remembered in the piece isn't he Joanne yeah Kevin I mean he the character that he was the boxer that he was and I think being able to put his achievements alongside the personality that he is you know it didn't dilute the piece at all it was still very sad he felt like it was a talent loss and I think more importantly he felt anger sadness and grief on behalf of uh, the Sheehy family because it's just unimaginable, I think, what they what they go through. You know, I mean, obviously, we see the sports star um, and we see the fellow boxing in the ring, but it's the person every day that they're around that has been taken away from them, you know, so cruelly. Um, and I think it's just so incredibly sad. You can't you can't really put it into, into words. And I think, you know, Brendan's right, the tone of the piece was just so, you know, it, it gave him such, you had such an image of Kevin, but also you had such an image of the pain left behind. Um, and I think to hear that he has a, a young daughter now um, growing up who is, you know, according to the mother, you know, total characteristics, I think that's lovely. But I think I could just imagine the pain every day of looking at, you know, a, a 2.0 but not having, you know, the, the Kevin that she wants um, must be incredibly sad. Yeah, to be honest, I cheered up, uh, you know, reading that uh, about a half an hour ago. It's just, yeah. Um, so thoughts with the, the family of, of Kevin Sheehy. Um, Eamon Sweeney uh, going backwards in a hurry back of the, the Sunday Independent today um, this is interesting about Irish athletics every single week Eamon Sweeney's got an original column and this is another one um, Sport Ireland's pre-games targets for the Tokyo Olympics were 3 top 8 6 top 16 and 10, 10 top 24 places for athletics the team fell spectacularly short with just one top eight, three top 16 and five top 24 places. At the Rio Olympics, with a much smaller team, the Irish athletes had two top eight, seven top 16 and seven top 24 places. At a time when the overall Irish performance was the best since 1996, Irish athletics went backwards at the rate of knots. The upshot is that the sport has lost its position at the head of the high-performance funding table, slipping to third behind rowing and Paralympic sport. The Irish media, myself included, pussyfoots around athletics to a certain degree. The demands on the competitors are so great, the competition so tough, reluctant to call out failure 
But accentuating the positive has become counterproductive. Predictions that great things may have been offering the major championships are regularly followed by a string of disappointing displays. Our well-meaning optimism only contributes to public cynicism and indifference. Perhaps the most discouraging thing about last week's indictment of athletics was that it had little impact. Few care anymore. you got to think about Sonia Sullivan, Dervil O'Rourke, John Tracy, Jerry Kiernan, all, Eamon Coughlin, all these great athletes we've had in our history. And is there an accountability deficit, I wonder, Brendan, when it comes to Irish athletics delivering results? Um, it's a very, very good question. I, I, I always think of um, horse racing as a subset of sport in a way that a lot of people who love sport find horse racing hard to get into. And Are I think, you one of those? Yeah, I am. Even though I covered Cheltenham for 10 years, I find it's it's just there's there's a barrier whether it's perceived or real that people don't really get it and i think at- athletics is similar in the sense that you look at athletics it's a huge area you know you've a, a sprinter you've a, a long distance runner you've a hammer thrower you know it's 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 a subset in, in itself it's a little defined world by itself it's hard to have the expertise to cover that do you know what i mean it's 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 something over there in the corner. It's not a main sport. From a media point of view, I think it's a little bit daunting to get into it at times. Um, is it um, given a, a kind of a free pass? I don't know. I don't know. But there are definitely questions being asked about how we go forward with, with athletics in terms of the Olympics now. And that Tokyo review last week that is mentioned um there was definitely talk about how do we proceed in terms of um, the numbers of athletes that we have at future Olympics. And clearly athletics was top of the pile when they were thinking about that. Do we, like that was our biggest ever team in Tokyo. And as Eamon says, the athletic side of it did not go well. So how do we approach that in the future? Do we have less athletes? Do we Do we narrow in on who we give the funding to in athletics? And as we've seen from the funding that came out this year do we divert the funding towards rowing or boxing or whatever that are more likely to bring us medals now there's another side to that as well Great Britain in the last 10 or 15 years absolutely went hammer and tongs after medals and cycling especially yeah they decided to go after cycling about 20 years ago absolutely and the the results were incredible the velodrome all this kind of stuff and yet look at the culture that that fostered and the stories we've seen coming out about bullying and everything else in in so so my my point being is the other the other example in team gb was um basketball in in great britain was totally defunded nearly um because they weren't considered an athletic uh, an olympic medal hopeful and yet, in participation terms, it was enormous. Right. So where do, what's, your, what's your priority here? We always have this participation versus elite success. So where does the money go? Athletics is a very accessible sport. You know, you don't need anything. People talk about all you need for football is a ball and a, and a couple of jumpers. For athletics, all you need is to run outside well, If you look at participation sports in Ireland, I would estimate that swimming and athletics are out of the top. Yeah. So do we say to sports that are not meddling at the Olympics, sorry, um, and yet there has to be an accountability at the same time. So it's a very difficult balance for Sport Ireland and people at the top of sport in this country to get it right. I think it's, it, it, there's no question about it that athletics is struggling and people will tell you it is a truly global sport. Of course. Truly global. That's why Sonia, a lot of people would say, is our greatest ever. Absolutely, in a way that rowing probably isn't. You know, you will have world and Olympic champions from countries in athletics that you would never have 
in rowing. So it's a very complicated issue. I don't have any of the right answers for it. But there, there's clearly things that can be done. I mean, one of the shortfalls in Irish athletics for years has been coaching. And again, this comes back to how diverse a sport it is. Like, how do you set up a coaching system for athletes who are based all over the country in different disciplines all over the world in some instances you know um, who are very individual people who do their own thing and we'll see an article from Shane McGrath about uh, how that feeds into it so it's a a very big issue not just in terms of funding but in terms of logistics how you fund it its role in the Olympic cycle athletics is a huge part of the Olympics as well do we just accept that this isn't for us anymore in that sense well can can we say with confidence we're going to get a medal in the Paris Olympics uh, in 2024 in track and field I would say no, no. now I would say no um, just yeah the, 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 the Shane McGrath's article in the Irish Daily Mail just about they're talking about the social research and economic institute commissioning by the GA and GPA the inter-county players can spend up to 31 hours a week on their commitments to the game Anne-Marie McGlynn 42 years of age competing in the marathon at the European Athletics Championships this August I'm doing 90 miles a week at probably 8 hours of running then you've got 2 hours of strength and conditioning then your physio Hugh Armstrong going to compete in the marathon as well at the European Athletics Championships. The Mayo man won the Wrexham Marathon three weeks ago. His time of two hours, 14 minutes, four seconds, breaking the Welsh all-comers record that stood since 1963. Uh, He's still running up to 15 hours a week. Then you go stretching, you go to the gym. It's two and two and a half hours a day at least. He's also a trainee accountant working front post in the GPO. He'll have exams to consider in the coming months too. There's a logistical challenge of finding the time to work full-time, study and still train twice a day, Joanne. Yeah, um, it's definitely not an ideal place. And I think you notice in, you know, the likes of, you know, the Great Britons, the Americas, you know, all those countries who are producing athlete after athlete after athlete, like sport and study is an extreme, you know, like they're so together, you know, in what they do. Whereas in Ireland, we tend to divide it into three different segments. You know, sport is separate to work, which is separate again to study, you know, which I think has also gone against us in that we just don't embrace, you know, the likes of the student athletes, you know, coming through. And instead we just put more and more pressure on them every single time um, something comes about. But, you know, I think it's, I think that's the thing with athletics. You know, I think it's, it's not that people don't care. It's just that less people seem to be as invested um, in the whole athletics course. You know, I mean, if I think what, 20 years ago, um, athletics was, was it, I mean, athletics was huge in our house, you know, absolutely huge. Whereas now oh, one of us maybe cares. Um, and I think that just, it, it, it's quite sad to, to, you know, see on top of it. And I think then you also see, you, you know, I think Eamon Sweeney had it in his piece, you know, Cahal Dennehy is obviously one of the biggest advocates for athletics um, here in Ireland. And he publishes a piece that's a little bit controversial before the nationals and Athletics Ireland gives him a phone call and says, oh, BT Dubs, you know, you're not coming to be our commentator. Yet he would be the prime person to be a commentator after his depths of hell commentary. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes as well, they do shoot themselves in the foot that way. Um, you know, it's not a very popular thing to say. You know, I think only, what, last year was it Sonia was the only one who was like, we need to start asking questions about why they were in Tokyo so early and yet they were complaining about climatization. Um, there's just so much of it, I think you just have to consider. But, you know, going back to, you know, the people behind the stories, these are the ones who are most impacted by the funding cut. You know, it's not the fellows who are sitting at the top. It's not the suits at the table or whatever it may be. It's the people who are putting in the hard hours day in, day out, trying to balance life, trying to balance their sport and also trying to make their country proud and having that pressure on them than on top of it. So we also do need to look at it that way. Like, why do we immediately look at an athlete and go, this person is going to do such big things for us in, in the Olympics? But yeah, when push comes to shove, 
the funding's not there. We're kind of looking at it going, why aren't they doing well? Yeah, why don't we separate the funding for the athletes from the accountability for the organisations? Yeah, like, I mean, I think we kind of tend to throw the accountability a little bit more at the athlete. Like, you know, I would notice that from, okay, I'm obviously talking about armchair experts as well here, you know, but we tend to kind of look at going, well, why didn't she perform? She must be, she mustn't be that great or he mustn't be that great. Yeah, we kind of refuse to look at the outside perspective as well. Um, and again, these are just armchair experts, you know, but these are just, these are, this is what you'd see obviously day in, day out. Um, and it must be incredibly frustrating. You know, it must be really annoying to hear that your organization, you know, everyone is kind of letting them go by, but yet you're the one at the, when push comes to shove, you're the one who's crossing the line, having to do the media interview time and time again, going, yeah, I just wasn't at my best today. You know, when do we look at it and say, why aren't these people at their best when it comes to, you know, the big tournaments? You know, I think we do have to start asking questions. I'm kind of with Brendan. I don't think funding cutting is, is kind of the way to go, but I think at the same time in Ireland, we do have an issue not just in sports, but we do have an issue with throwing money at things in the hope that it does go away. You know, like hoping to God, you know, okay, here's another seven million, please build a children's hospital or whatever is going on at the moment. Um, so yeah, I think you have to look at it too from that point of view, you know, for sending in money, we have to start looking at realistic targets that they're meeting and then maybe asking questions rather than cutting funding immediately. But I suppose then on the flip side, maybe Sport Ireland are just sick of Athletics Ireland not coming through time and time again, who knows? This is the Sunday Paper Review. Joanna Reardon and Brendan O'Brien with uh, me this morning. Phil Mickelson, uh, the PJ Championship takes place next uh, Thursday in Oklahoma, Southern Hills, and he will not be there. He's the defending champion. Golf is embroiled in a kind of, I suppose, a fledgling civil war uh, without any arms. The arms are money, is the arms uh, race is, is all about money. Uh, so we have Brendan um, Alan Shipnook is this very good golf writer who's been on the beat for about 20 years and he's bringing out a book on Tuesday called Phil about Phil Mickelson's career six time major champion probably the second best golfer maybe you could add Rory to the mix there but the second best golfer of, of, of the generation of Tiger Woods uh, behind Woods and you know, Phil Mickelson's withdrawal from his defence of the USPJ Championship is shock off. This is the Sunday Times. This exclusive extract from a book about him published this week reveals the lengths he went to, the money he spent and the company he kept to maintain his betting compulsion. Yes, yeah, so he gambles a lot. So what? But I suppose when um, separate to that is, is the whole fact that he, um, you know, there was a leverage uh, between him and the Saudis and this LIV tour and the PGA tour where he's made, what, 100 million out of the PGA tour. Um, so where do you stand on the whole Phil thing um, well I was going to be buying this book anyway but the extract just... I've never looked forward to book more as much as I have well, this one yeah for, for obvious reasons I mean Shipnook is a brilliant writer uh, Phil Mickelson has been a fascinating character for 20-25 years um, you know the guy who could never get it done never get over the line in the majors always in Tiger's shadow and then it happened for him was it 04 in the, the Masters I yes. think was his first one first of six uh, major titles, the oldest winner of a major title, I believe, after after last year. And um, a guy who's always divided opinion, if you're a kind of a casual golf follower like me, he's one of the guys you turn on the TV for. So exciting. So exciting. Like, the, the manner in which he plays, um, and it's interesting as well, because there's another piece, David Walsh in the, in the Times is talking about uh, Greg Norman's um, fronting of the Saudi golf tour. And he's describing Norman, and I was just thinking of Mickelson as he was describing Norman in, in the way he played in that. He, uh, he's not only fearless, he has no idea how to be afraid, he doesn't have a safe shot, he has a death wish, he makes the worst decisions under pressure. Like, all of that sounds to me like the way Mickelson used to be. Wasn't he renowned as the guy who 
couldn't play it properly to a get the stubborn job done. gambler yeah mm, that's interesting now isn't it you know when everything comes to light so two very interesting guys who are the two faces that we're coming to um put together with the, the Saudi tour for all sorts of reasons you're right the gambling thing in itself shouldn't be of any interest but when you add it into the Saudi issue I mean he's earned a hundred million dollars from the PGA tour and the accounts here say he lost 40 million dollars but it's nearly half his income in, in we don't know what he won um, yeah. uh, we don't know the extent of his earnings as well um, look for, for him 40 million could be the same as 400 quid over a year for somebody mm. we don't know but uh, look uh, it's amazing that what I find really really interesting is the fact that guys like Steve Flesh and Tom Lehman uh, the former CBS announcer Gary McCord are all um quoted about it but this obviously was a huge part of Phil Mickelson's life that this was um, present all the time in his life was gambling Yeah, when he didn't win a major title to the age of 33 like how many majors could he have won well and you could flip that in its head the fact he did win them if all this was going on is incredible as well and it just shows as well I mean there's one um, anecdote about him surreptitiously listening to a game that he had money on during his round with an earpiece and a radio hidden in his clothes. And then McCord, the former CBS golfer, is talking about how his um, caddy Bones... Um, so McCord would be up in the TV tower and every time Phil got to my hole, Bones would look at me and I would flash the odds. If Phil had a 15-footer, I'd flash three fingers, which meant the odds were three to one. If he was 60 feet, I'd give him... T- like, that's incredible stuff. Do you know, like a guy... I know it's four, four and a half, around four and a half hours and guys... You can't be fully um, zeroed in on your golf game all that time. But to be doing that, and yet at the same time, it struck me that everybody with a gambling problem, it, it does filter into your life, doesn't it? I mean, if you're sitting at a, an office doing up figures as an accountant or whatever and you have a gambling problem, it, it affects that part of your life. So it shouldn't be that surprising. Well, we, well, that we can say that he had a compulsion. I don't know if we can say he had a problem, but we did, he definitely had a compulsion. Yeah. Um, the thing for me, though, whether Mickelson's gambling, and obviously that's a, that's a juicy part of the book, and we'll see what else is in the book, but it's the greed is the one thing I have the bigger issue with with the Saudi tour. It is just the um, disgusting greed of of these players like joining this, this tour. Um, now, I'm sure there are going to be lawsuits. They're independent contractors. That, that's what they will argue. The PGA tour will argue, well, we're a club that have made you rich. You have to commit to us. You can't be joining a competing organization. We've got broadcast deals and sponsorships to um, adhere to and uh, give the people that are supporting us financially uh, their just desserts in terms of their investment. Um, It's just there's no honor in players joining the Saudi tour for me. It is only about one thing and one thing only, and that's money. And when, um, you know, you've had 81 people executed in Saudi Arabia in March, like... It, it, there's just there, there's nothing of value for it like you, the, the value of a PGA Tour is that it, it's exciting for fans it's exciting for the best players in the world to play each other then they go with the four major championships there's a lot of heritage prestige the greats of the game Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer um, even from our own country back to Fred Daly to Joe Carr to, to Paul Jack Harrington to Christy O'Connor uh, senior and junior um the, the, the beauty of the courses, the magic of the game, Seve, all these great stories, um, Mickelson even being one of those, and just this soulless tour, um, which is only about one thing, and that's money. And it just, to me, is just, it, there's absolutely nothing admirable about it whatsoever. I agree with that, but, um, not but, I agree with that. One thing I will say from a purely business of sport point of view, now take out the Saudi, if this wasn't Saudis coming in at this, it was some other 
crowd. If you look at the history of sports business, you look, go back to the 50s or the 60s and the NFL and the AFL and there was anti-competitive um, accusations against the, the NFL when other leagues tried to come in. You look at Kerry Packard with cricket in the 70s or 80s or whenever it was. You look at the Bosman ruling in soccer. So there's always these people from the outside trying to say, why should this be a closed shop? Why should somebody else not come in with a different idea? And people do come up with the arguments, well, this is the way it is. There's a heritage, there's a majors, there's test cricket, there is, you know, the Chicago Bears or whatever it might be. That's from a purely business point of view. So in that sense, the players being independent contractors, you could argue that they have a point there. That said, I agree with everything you have said. It's despicable that this is coming from the source that it is coming from. And it is all about greed and it is all about money. And some of the utterances we've had purely in that terms from some of the people, um, you know, about I have to feed my family kind of job has been awful, absolutely awful. And there's no excuse for it. Where'd you stand on it, Joanne? Yeah, absolutely echo everything, you know, that has been said definitely before. I think Brendan is right. I think in this situation, it's not the what people are annoyed about. It's the who are proposing it that people are annoyed about. It's the way people are kind of going about it. It's the secrecy. It's the it's the PR shame of I can't say I'm going to the LIV because people will hate me because I clearly support Saudi Arabia, but then they're going off to Saudi Arabia anyway. Um, it's just it's incredibly frustrating from a golf perspective. I think we're all not stupid enough here to realise that the PGA Tour and the way it goes about its business absolutely needs to be changed. Absolutely. I think, you know, we do have to look at players being independent contractors. I think we do have to look at players hitting their shot, but yet they don't own the rights to it and stuff like that. But the people who are coming out saying that, the likes of your Phil Mickelson's, can't argue with that because they have been making such an insane amount of money from the PGA Tour. Like, these are the ones who can't come out and say it, do you know what I mean? Like, there are people who are lesser on the tour who could come out and say it. Obviously, they wouldn't be listened to as much, but you could be like, yeah, listen, I get it. You're living in your car and you're going day to day across America, you know, trying to play golf or whatever. Those are the people you understand it for, but these aren't the people that the Saudi investors, Greg Norman or whoever, um, wants to be on their tour. So, yes, it's incredibly sad. I think as well something that has to be looked at as well and it's definitely an uncomfortable topic is that the European tour has gone to Saudi Arabia as well before. So this isn't the first time that Saudi Arabia has been flirting with golf. You know, they have taken Shane Lowry over to, to Saudi. They have, you know, looked at other things. So there are, you know, I suppose if we start really like holding everyone to account, we won't have a game at the end of the day. But, you know, there are uncomfortable conversations that have to be had as well with the European tour going over to Saudi as well. Well, um, the European tour is uh, for, like backed by DP. So, there's, yeah. there's you know, it's... Uh, to me, the, the issue is it's almost like... It's the fact that the, the, the golf is now in danger of fracturing and it becoming uh, a much less appealing proposition. And I really enjoy the best players playing against each other. And that is now under threat. If, if the, if, like a bit like darts in the 90s, if this all breaks away. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, definitely with you, with you on that end. And I think what always stood out to me, there was two things really about the whole Phil Mickelson versus the PG that stood out to me. The first was obviously when the Masters was on and Greg Norman after the Masters said, oh, I actually know who was going all along. I just didn't want to announce it during the Masters because I didn't want to distract from the Masters. Like, okay, Greg, you really think the press release is going to distract from the greatest, you know, sporting event in golf? I don't, I don't think that's possible. And second, the big thing as well that stuck out to me from a PGA point of view was in the PGA statement that said that Phil won't be there, they also said that they were thinking about the wife 
um, Amy, and I thought that was something that was incredibly interesting. Whether there's something going on there, like why would you name the wife, you know, so openly? Like I'm not too sure. Like that was a that was a move in the press release that I think was made um, for a particular reason. Um, but I, I suppose at the end of the day, it is disappointing to see. You know, we know Phil's going over. We know Lee West was going over. You know, Sergio Garcia said, you know, his line at the, at the at one of the the, the two yeah. I don't have to play for you anymore or whatever it was yeah, yeah so whatever that means obviously that's ambiguous obviously we think we know what that means but you know it's ambiguous in itself but yeah it is incredibly disappointing i think the pga tour it's kind of like when the super league was kind of breaking away and uefa looked like the good guys and you're like these people aren't the good guys i kind of feel like it's the same with golf you know none of these people are good you know in that perspective term but we just have one that's a lot worse than the other yeah, that's a, a good way of putting it. Like, who knows what the deal is with Amy Mickelson or, or anything being brought into it. But uh, the Greg Norman article said he's picked to the right man and charismatic Norman at right stable. Well, I don't think Greg Norman's charismatic. That's that's a strange headline, isn't it? I, I, now, now, the journalists don't write the headlines um, necessarily, but um, Greg Norman, to me, has uh, been a public relations disaster for yep. this. Like the comments about Khashoggi. Now, he said it was reprehensible, but then he also said, uh, you know, the whole um, comment about all, we all make mistakes in life, that yep. kind of thing. Um more than 30 years ago, Norman tried to establish his right to play wherever he wished. They stopped him now with almost limitless financial backing. He's back and having another go. Um, 35 years ago, Norman was 32 and one of the best players in the world. He was also a United Nations blacklist of about 500 athletes, actors and entertainers who performed as an Africa and refused to commit to not doing so again while the apartheid regime was in place. Maybe the PJ Tour is not perfect and I would agree that it's the least worst option but they have to crush this if they don't crush the Saudi league and the only way they can crush it is through the fact that this thing doesn't have any credibility because players are not interested in playing in it if it gets a groundswell of support if they start going to invitationals if it builds over the next two to three years then you're going to have a fracturing of golf you'll have competing events in the United States against the PGA Tour that's what I don't want to see just from a, a point of view of enjoying the game and enjoying the sport and um, it's there's just too much money in golf. There's just like it's become saturated by money, and even the PGA Tour and the DP Tour have joined forces to give the golfers more money. You've got these ridiculous player incentive programs about social media, Bryson DeChambeau and um, Brooks Kepka contriving this stuff last year, um, allegedly, um, and, and and getting millions of dollars for doing nothing. Yeah, it's it's it just it is completely lost its moorings as a sport from the people that you know would want to maybe spend 10 or 15 quid to go and watch it and it's interesting as well because you talk about that credibility thing this is going to be a long game the Saudis have a bottomless pit of money to throw at this and there's an interesting line in, in David Walsh's piece on Norman where he talks about Norman says that any player filing a lawsuit against the PGA or DP World Tours need not worry about cost LIV Golf has been preparing for this day and will pay for any action and it would actually welcome a legal battle that shifted the narrative from human rights in Saudi Arabia to the legal rights of elite golfers. So, you know, talk about the likes of Kerry Packer and, and that in, in years gone by. These guys are like, it's like the Premier League, you know, you had your local carpet salesman who had a few million quid who took over the local club and made it big. Now we've got independent states in, in the Gulf that are yeah. taking over. It's different ball game. If you're an antitrust lawyer and you're out of work, you yeah. now are going to be uh, going to be okay for the next few Absolutely. years. Absolutely. Um, Joanne, anything uh, before we go that you know you might want to point the listeners to that before we go off air? Um, listen, I think Cork Camogie. You know, anyone who wants to watch, they should watch. You know, a little bit of the Camogie highlights if they possibly can last night. Um, because Cork were pushed all the way by Clare in a very exciting game. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, hopefully now, fingers crossed, 
all going well, Walsh Park won't be as traumatic as what it's supposed to be. I hope it's not like watching Jordan speech at the Masters where it's death by a thousand cuts. Like I hope we just <laughs> out if necessary. Like I would rather die from bleeding than, you know, death by a thousand cuts. So please, Cork GA, no pressure <laughs> on that. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, pleasure to be here, boys. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Oh, Joanne and Jordan speech remember, can win the Career Grand Slam next week. Um... I don't want to believe, John. I've spent a lot of my time believing and being let down by that man. I do not want to believe. So when you come to me on Friday, chances are I will be believing again. <laughs> Brenton, anything to point to? Yeah, the Haaland stuff is interesting. Yeah, it is. There's various know? articles. Jonathan yeah. Wilson and this pieces in the Sunday Times about Everton had the chance to get him for 60 grand and didn't. Yeah. And also a piece about him as well in uh, one of the papers that just in terms of the fact that he played all these multidisciplinary sports as, as a teenager and how that helped him. Uh, which is definitely interesting to good, good stuff about him across the week yeah across the week and across really the papers stuff. today yeah. so Joanne thank you thanks for having me really appreciate it great stuff Joanne Reardon there Irish Times columnist Brendan O'Brien from the Irish Examiner thanks so much for coming in thanks John I look forward to uh, seeing you soon now off the ball on your radio from 1 to 7 on News Talk and on the OTB Sports app we've got two live and exclusive Premier League commentary games to bring you first up West Ham against Manchester City Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr providing the call there then Jessica Farry and Vinnie Perth will describe Everton against Brentford we've also got reporters at the GA Championship matches between Waterford and Cork Kildare and Westmeath Dublin and Meath and Derry and Monaghan if you missed any of the Sunday paper review you can check out the podcast on the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your pods you can also watch it back on the YouTube channel The the ball channel back in your radio on news talk at one o'clock we'll chat then the sunday papers on off the ball